Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by STF Management. Ben, I've got a blog post. Remember those things? Mm-hmm. I've got a blog post that's uh, bacon in the oven right now. And the premise is that at the beginning of the year, why take risk when you could get 4% risk free? Right? That was like re- reasonable thinking at the time. Yes. A lot of people Well, guess that. what? NASDAQ 100 up almost 30% year to date. <laughs> and this is why if you are going to invest, you need rules because intuition, gut just doesn't, doesn't work. And for a lot of people, when it's scary and uncertain, you need rules to keep you invested, right? Like to keep you long when things are going up. So SDF management has two ETFs. They're both active, TUG and TUGN, T-U-G, T-U-G-N, that offer tactical risk management exposure on the NASDAQ 100. Basically, trend following. Trend following the NASDAQ, it goes to either treasuries or cash during a downtrend, invested in the NASDAQ 100 during an uptrend, right? Which makes sense because this is a very trending index, as you can see. We'll link to this in the show notes, but as always, especially with things that might be new to you that are not simply a buy and hold, you have to understand the uh, the pros, the cons of every strategy that you're investing in. So please do your own research. We'll link to the show notes. If you're looking for a rules-based way to Stay in the market when it's going up. Visit stfm.com. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Michael, did we create a supply chain crisis? We might have. I think we did. I, th- I mean, the supply chains were looking good and then... We talked about our new Animal Spirits Tropical Bros shirts last week, and the demand was so high that we sold out of small, medium, and large already. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the price of shipping containers went back up. Oh, nope. We we sold out. People, the demand was way higher than the supply. The economy is still going strong based on Tropical Brothers' demand. So if we follow this as our rule of recession, things are still going fine. So we are working on restocking these now. It might take a few weeks, they tell us, because we just, we didn't know that this many people were going to buy them. We should have. We should have known, but we created a supply chain crisis. So thanks to everyone who bought them. And again, a great 10% of all proceeds going to No Kid Hungry, which is a great cause. And we're going to restock these so people, everyone can have one if they want one. There we go. Thanks to everyone who bought. Can't wait to see them out in the wild. Uh, all right. So the debt ceiling deal, I wasn't really paying attention to anything this weekend. I was out on the water. I was enjoying myself. Were you on the jet ski all weekend or at the beach or it was hot, right? It was, uh, it was, it was, a, yeah, it was a beach for me. So I, I didn't even realize. Is Memorial Day weekend the best week? Well, best weekend of the year. That's a, that's a stretch. But Fourth of, Fourth of July is better, but the weather was yeah, so but nice. It kicks it off, like but it a, kicks off the summer. Yeah. You know, I, I, heard, I heard some people this weekend saying happy summer. At like the, I was getting a drink somewhere. People were saying happy summer to each other. Nah, it seemed nah, like a stretch. Nah. I was like, eh, that's, that's yeah. pushing it a little. The ha- yeah. happy, you know, like, all right, we're, weather's good. People are having an Oberon by the pool. Great. But so I didn't even realize that they came to like this debt ceiling thing. My phone was away and oh, there's a debt ceiling deal. And it didn't surprise me at all because this is just what happens, right? And it feels like there was a lot of brain power expended on this thing and talking about trillion dollar coins. And now I'm sure people are going to talk about, well, the vote, do they have enough votes? And that's going to be a big argument. And can we disagree to not talk about this as a market moving event in the future? I'm out. I mean, I have, I didn't pay attention to it. I don't know any of the details. 
the good the good news is the market saw right through this, right? And and the market also felt saw through the banking crisis. Remember the banking crisis? And I guess if your default, which a lot of people is, maybe not a lot, maybe a lot of people we hear from, the default is every crisis is the next big, big thing. And this is going to bring down the system. This is going to bring down the markets. Sure, sometimes there is a crisis that causes huge market-moving events, and it's, but most of the time, I don't know, things just work out. And I've said this before, that's my, my guiding philosophy in life. Sometimes it, most of the time it, it serves me well. Sometimes it comes back to bite me in the ass. But I think that's just the way that you have to look at these things is that not every, the world's not going to end all the time. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's a good philosophy, especially with something like the debt ceiling, which is mutually assured destruction. And my, one of my guiding philosophies, Ben, is risk, like real, real risk. It's never what everybody is worrying about. Exactly. For everyone's talking about forever. Yeah. That's not, that's not where risk comes from. Yes, that's a good that's a good point. Is that the, the stuff that's true risk is the stuff that comes kind of comes out of left field and you go, wow, no one saw that coming. This is crazy, like the pandemic, obviously. All right. Uh Bank of America flows. This is from Soberlook. Did you see this one? You're a big flow guy. Huge flow guy. Okay. So this is we talk about flows on like a monthly basis or a quarterly, whatever, and sometimes it's hard to put them into context. So this is a cumulative flows since 2007. And this is interesting to me because so 2007 to 2013, call it, flows were in negative territory. People were net sellers of stocks. Then we get a bump, and, and I think 2013 is when people really start, okay, this whole like double-dip recession is not going to happen. We've moved beyond 2008. The, the European debt crisis is kind of behind us. We had a leg up, and then another one in like 2017. I think this market was up like 30% that year. But then look at the massive spike in 2021, which Wild. is... So here's the... Here's the if, thing. Some, if somebody told if somebody told you that there would be a once in a century global pandemic that shut the economy down and this would happen you that people would go in an epic buying binging stock spree you would say you would do the von Burgundy I don't believe you and if we're doing the behavioral finance thing of this the the sad thing is surprisingly, no one was, I mean, obviously after 2008, people were like, get me out. I don't want nothing to do with the stock market. It crashed 50% twice in less than a decade. I, I understand that sentiment for some portion of investors were like, that's it. I'm done. I'm washing my hands. I'm not investing in stocks again. But the fact that throughout the 2010s, when we had a rip roaring bull market of, I don't know, the 2010s, I think did us 13 and a half percent per year. But wait, I feel like the GFC wasn't really in the rearview mirror until 14, 15, because in yeah. 13, when we got to the highs, everybody was like, you know, people were not like all in. Yeah. It wasn't until like really 17 that people were like, holy cow, this really is a bull market. Yeah. But I'm just surprised that that whole bull market that, you know, eight or nine years into it still didn't bring a huge increase in equities. And then the pandemic, like you said, just, just dwarfs everything. And it's, I don't know, just behaviorally, this is, and it's, it's almost too bad that people weren't buying stocks from 2009 to 2013 or whatever, when they were underwater that whole time, that's the time you want to be buying stocks. And obviously this is just human nature and this is what happens, but it's, it's kind of a shame that people weren't buying stocks then. Ben, you, you say, you say the phrase, uh, often that X broke people's brains, right? Whether it's whatever, whatever the case may be. Ed Borgato had a great quote about this. He said, investor frustration often stems from not being able to bridge the gap between what they think should happen versus what is happening. I think that's that's part of the, like, early on in my career, 
I met so many smart people that blew me away by their intelligence. And I felt like, gosh, these people know exactly what's going to happen. And I saw so many times where these people were wrong. I remember in 2010, 2011, like a really smart hedge fund we were invested in that, that all they focused on was European equities. And they were like, this is it. Within the month, the European Union is done. The Euro is done. And we were like, holy crap. And obviously that didn't happen. I saw enough of that kind of stuff where I just, to myself, kind of thought, I'm not going to try to be right all the time anymore. Because the even the smartest people out there cannot do it. And I think that's part of it is just thinking about what should happen. It's, it's okay to just like let go and not worry about that stuff. Uh, yeah, the, the alpha is in not being massively wrong. <laughs> yes, and, and staying out of your own way. So we talked a couple weeks ago, actually, about the Gallup poll. I think I was Googling it as we were doing this show. And two weeks later, Gallup releases a new poll saying stock ownership, 61% of adults say they have money invested in the stock market, the highest percentage Gallup has measured since 2008. It fell to 52% in 2013 and 2016. Uh, most surveys prior to 2008 found 60% of or more adults owning stock. This has basically flatlined since 1999. It got a, right around there to 60%. I think it was 20%. If I do a quick history for you here, I wrote a blog post about this. 1% of all people own stocks in America in the Great Depression, 1929. I know everyone thought everyone got ruined in the stock market, 1% of the population. It was still 19% in 1983. And then the 1980s and 90s bull market really charged it. And then by the end of the 90s, it got up to 60%. And it's basically flatlined there. Is this, is this kind of the new normal of where it's going to be? Could we ever get to like 70, 75%? Yeah, I think so. And I think that this is more a story or less a story about stock market performance and more a story about the ease of getting into the stock market with services like Betterment and things like that. Yeah, the other thing we have to mention too about the, the flows in this data that is trending up, and it, it has seen a nice little spike since 2020. People had money. It was only access. People had money finally that they could invest or they wanted to invest. So I, I do hope most of these people stick around. I don't know. How many of them do you think have piled into NVIDIA? Did you ever own this stock? Is this one that I've never heard you do? I never bought NVIDIA. No, okay. too volatile for me. Yeah, it's, it's, the stock is too good. No one goes there anymore. <laughs> so I, I looked at this, and so NVIDIA's price to sales, I think you were talking about this on your uh, Compounded Friends this week. It, it, like the price to sales ratio is like 35. It's, 35. It's, it's an enormous number. So I wanted to look at this in, in relation to the tech stocks in the dot-com bubble. So I pulled up Cisco, Qualcomm, Intel, and Oracle. The highest one back then in 1999 or 2000 was Cisco at 39 times sales. And that was the one that, that got to be the biggest stock, and it's still underwater from there. Qualcomm got to 31. Intel was not much, was like 16, and Oracle was 27. And so I'm sure you could pick out another few names that got even higher, but it, NVIDIA now is higher than some of the tech stocks back then. In the also, crazy, what, was, what was like Cisco's peak inflation-adjusted market cap? I didn't, Did I it get to a trillion? I don't well, think so. It was 400-something, I think, at the peak. But, but the, to, ha to have a to have a to have a trillion dollar company trading at thirty five times sales is pretty wild. Although, how about this? Do you think more money will be lost chasing the stock or shorting it? Can I say both? I, I the funny thing is, you would you would be right to say this stock is going to have a massive crash at some point, but it literally just did. Look at the the drawdown; it was down sixty six percent. Yeah, I was about to say yes. Yeah, it felt like seventy. Yeah, Two it was, thirds it was of its value from the high last yeah. year, and now yeah. it's totally round tripped, and. 
and this is the kind of thing where if the if AI continue it does push us into a stock market bubble and Nvidia really is the what's the the quote the only arms dealer or whatever it could go to 70 times it wouldn't surprise me right if if this is the the one there's going to be other companies that come along and have dot ai at the end of their name and and go crazy but if this is the stock it's it's going to to your point about volatility it's going to be the most volatile stock in the world probably like something that 6% today but you do have to wonder like literally who's buying it today i mean Obviously, right. after a lot of 20, people, twenty five percent. Yeah, that's a that's a really good. So I looked at the Nasdaq one hundred top seven names. I tried to tell you this the other day. You said Ben, I know what they are. So obviously, you're you're well informed here for for the listeners. Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Nvidia, Facebook, Tesla. You know what? It's not, not, that's not. I feel like I. I you know what? I bet you sixty uh, percent of our audience knows the top seven stocks. Maybe even more. Sixty percent. Yeah, I'm bullish on our audience. Duncan, give us a survey on that on YouTube. Do you know the top seven stocks in the NASDAQ 100? That's all. Okay. I, I mean, I had to kind of look about uh, 40% of the NASDAQ 100 in Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, and Amazon alone. Just the, That's a huge, huge number that I'm not sure a lot of people understand. Market cap on steroids. Yes? And the NASDAQ, as you said, you know, when Apple, this year. When Apple goes to zero, that's really going to hurt the market. <laughs> it's... I don't know. I, I do feel like the if you're like looking to get the best from the winners and you just don't know, then the NASDAQ 100 is a pretty simple proxy for this kind of stuff. Like, if, I don't know, if you were just wanted to tow in the water to the the AI stuff and like, I don't know, I'm not a stock picker, like the NASDAQ 100 seems like an obvious answer, right? Yeah. I, um, I took COVID to the mall yesterday. And uh, why am I saying? Oh, we, so there's an Apple store in the mall and it's like every other Apple store, it's always packed. There's also a Samsung like ripoff type store. There was like you know six or seven people in there. And then you have the kiosk where the guy is trying to sell you like a flip phone. Not anymore. Remember, you know what I saw yesterday in the mall? Uh, a lava lamp. Remember those things? Oh yeah, I had a friend. I had a friend who had a, a waterbed and and a lava lamp in high school. What do you think that says about that person? He never had any females to his house. I don't know. <laughs> the lava lamp poor choices uh, yeah why are you at the mall on Memorial Day that's a choice well that's a fair it's a fair question because it was super windy like super super windy and like we were already at the beach for the prior two days so uh, Rob went with Logan Kobe didn't want to go to the beach and guess what I didn't want to go to the beach okay because you you and I were at the beach last week actually we did our show from Miami uh, I've never seen a person put on sunscreen like more two two times close together. Like you put it on, and like ten minutes later you put it on again. Oh yeah, guess but what? Credit, it wasn't credit enough. to you, and you, you still burnt a little bit. No, you can't see it. So my, my head was peeling uh, a little bit over the weekend because I because it was F, SPF thirty. Here, SPF thirty is like you know okay. The Florida sun said. Uh, you just need SPF a hat at all times, pretty much, right? Pasty bastard, and it <laughs> yeah wasn't enough. Okay, so anyway, any more for your mall, sir? Or is that it? Uh, no, that was it. I'm good. Okay. All right. So a bunch of people were dunking on Ark and Kathy Wood about selling NVIDIA. So Bloomberg had this story that they dumped it in, I don't know, January or February, right before the huge run-up. It said it's added $560 billion in market cap since Kathy Wood sold it. $200 billion, of course, of that coming after one day when it was up 25% or whatever. I, I think this says less about like the innovation fund and her stock picking skills than more than it does that like this stuff is really hard. You think? And how many people like a year ago were saying, 
oh, there's going to be this this chat GPT thing that comes out, <laughs> and it's going to totally change how people right. think about AI and the future, right. and yeah. that no one was predicting that this was going to happen. So I, no, I there think- was also massive supply chain issues with semiconductors. I mean, obviously, that's why stock was down almost lost two thirds of its value. It was not look; it was looking pretty bleak, and then yeah, and then the AI, the AI thing, which to my point about Arc versus like the Nasdaq 100. I think you're better off indexing innovation than you are trying to find someone who's going to pick it for you. That That's my thinking is that the winners are going to rise to the top. So own a lot of different ones and let the winners rise to the top as opposed to looking for someone to pick them out for you. I don't think people are going to be able to pick the innovation winners. I'm sorry. My opinion right now, which, you know, it's an uninformed opinion, granted, is that we're talking, we're seeing a lot of startups that are trying to do this AI stuff. And just from like that point of view, I'd much rather be late than early. Yes. Because I don't know if there's going to be any winners. I think, you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of the value might just accrue to the users and there might not be trillions of dollars in business opportunity. Maybe there is. I mean, NVIDIA sure looks like it, but I'm just saying like when the dust settles, this might be like the airplane where great for the users and just a really lousy, lousy business. I can, right. I could be incredibly way off, but well, to your, your point about who's going to lose more money, the longs or the shorts and saying both it, there probably will be a ton of stocks that just go bananas when they come out, when the IPO or when they change and, and have a, a pivot in strategy or whatever of it. And you're right. Those ones probably won't be the winners. It'll probably be something we don't even think about it, or it'll just be the incumbents. It'll be Microsoft and Google. And that will be the thing that like those things will be fine. I don't know. I wouldn't want to try to pick them as my whole, is what I'm saying though. I would not want to pick the winners here. All right. This is a good chart. Well, I don't know if it's good, but it's an interesting chart. The number of S&P 500 members beating the S&P 500 over the last three months is at the lowest level since 2000. So we had this, you had that really amazing chart last week showing that concentration is not necessarily like a harbinger of really lousy future returns. That being said, broader participation, all else equal, is better than narrow leadership. Um, but we're in the situation again where if you're not long these mega cap tech names, you're you're trailing. You know the, the weird every good investment strategy in history size has been the enemy of outperformance. When people figure out that a strategy works eventually money pours in and it stops working. If anything, it's gotten harder over the last 20 years to beat an index fund, which is sounds crazy because all the hedge fund managers have said, just wait, we're, we're, when people leave the table, there's going to be more opportunities. It's gotten harder to outperform yeah. the indexes. And there's maybe yeah, there's going to be just, times when it's It's just not hedge funds battling with each other. Although that's not true because there's a lot of retail traders that got involved. So I don't know if that's exactly true. And this part of the market environment where it's, it's these huge mega cap stocks that have been working and boy, was that a, how many, I mean, I, I looked at the, the dot-com bubble and it took 15 years to come back or whatever. The tech stock, what did we have, a 15-month break in tech stocks going crazy and now they're going nuts again? Was it even that long? You saw the stat about the queues beating every growth manager over a 10-year period. I met, it's directionally right. I don't know if I have the stat exactly right. No. I, I wouldn't doubt it, though. All right. So this is from... I don't know where this is from. Estimated U.S. recession probability in the next 12 months. So they poll 50 different economists. 
They did one in April, in January, and they did another one in April. And nobody's, for the most part, nobody's coming down. So 66% of those polled say a recession in the next 12 months, which um, you know might, or might not happen, but people are not budging at all on their recession calls. Where are we in the dock here? I'm lost. Under economy. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, I skip stuff? My bad. Maybe. No, it's fine. All right, so this is a good one. Barry actually posted this. Uh, Wall Street says a recession is coming. Consumers say it's already here. Uh, the recession calls are growing louder on Wall Street, but for many of the households and businesses who make up the world economy, the downturn is already here. More than one-third of Americans believe the economy is now in recession, according to a poll last month by Civic Science. This headline and story came out in July 2022. We're already in a recession. It's almost a year now, and it's, we've been talking about this for Longer than that, right? It's, I think everyone would have been, you remember for a, a few years there when we had the zero bound, I don't know, I don't really, I never really understand the zero bound, like getting off the zero bound. I don't really understand the bound part, but whatever, it sounds cool. When we had 0% rates, there was a lot of people saying, we, this economy cannot handle coming off of 0%. If we raise above zero, and, and I probably would have thought something similar, like we probably can't handle more than 3% rates or whatever. Yeah, I thought that was a reasonable. The resiliency I'm, I'm, of the economy with rates going parabolic is is really impressive. And again, I, I don't know if anyone would have predicted that ahead of time. Oh, I did have another moral thought actually. I was thinking about this because what what powers the economy? It's you know consumer spending for the most part, and a lot of fiscal stimulus help, but consumer spending. I think this is a social media thing. When I was growing up, I don't remember like kids wearing Jordans. Like I remember. I remember my my budget for sneakers was like fifty dollars, and whatever Jordans were at the time, maybe they were a hundred bucks. Not like not a lot of kids had those. No, it was like we had like the one rich kid in our class had them. Maybe exactly uh, right. There was like one or two whose parents you know spoiled them rotten and got them everything. But I feel like now it's like every kid. every kid has everything. Yes, you see like toddlers with Jordans now. I I was always I remember the, a big day in my life in like fourth grade. When I upgraded from Nikes to Nike Air, remember you kind of got laughed at when you just had regular Nikes. You didn't, you couldn't see the air cushion. Getting the air cushion was a big upgrade in your life. Yeah, sneaker sneaker day was a big day. One time I got a pair of Barclays because they were like marked for like fifty dollars, even though they were like said they had the wrong sticker on them. But people at the register hooked it up. Thank you, uh, Foot Action or whoever it was. How many pairs Don't of Jordans remember. do you have now? What's I, that? I actually have, I have like two pairs of Jordan, three, four pairs of Jordans maybe. But I have like the jogging shoe ones. What do you have? How many do you have? You have a lot of Jordans, right? Kind of? I have several. Okay. Not to brag. Several is um, oh, more than a few, right? Several, several. All right. But yeah, the economy is not slowing down. So this is from S&P Global Market Intelligence. We're looking at the flash PMI output indicators of G4 developed economies. I, quote, economic growth across the four largest developed economies has accelerated to the fastest for 13 months in May. Growth was driven entirely by services. So manufacturing is, is you know, mostly stalling, but can't stop, won't stop. All right, Carl Cantanini. I, I do think this is one of those things that you mentioned the mall. Like, this is when the anecdata actually can help you. When you see packed restaurants and packed bars and packed flights and people are still spending money, that's not exactly the economy, but it kind of is. And when you when you see that happening, it's, it's, it's hard to think, oh, people are reining in their spending and pulling back. U.S. screened nearly 9.8 million airline passengers over a four-day holiday weekend, topping pre-COVID levels by 300,000. So we're back. And and 
uh, domestic airfare is getting cheaper with the average round trip ticket at 273. So it's too it's too late to say that inflation is definitely peaked. I think that's like probably like you know the odds would would favor that, but you know we'll see. Um, soft landing, who knows? But like, are we trending towards that? I don't know. It just it just keeps charging ahead. All right, kudos to the Wall Street Journal. They they this is just Ben and Michael Bait blackjack inflation. Uh, blackjack players lost more than a billion dollars to casino on the casinos on the strip last year. The second highest loss on record after two thousand seven. Some casinos are cutting back on the number of tables and raising minimums. So they're talking about how they're raising minimum bets to like twenty five and fifty dollars a table or a hand. When I was in Vegas, I don't think they I don't think the casino I was at had tables under twenty five dollars. So blackjack inflation, yeah. The first time I ever played blackjack, and I, I like the dealer taught me. You know how if you go on a cruise, I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise before. No, nope. they have a casino on the cruise. I was eighteen years old, and in international waters, you could gamble at eighteen before it was twenty one. And it was $2.50 a hand, mm. which is just, and it was great. So I would go there with $20 and play, play all night. It's, so they, they also said, blackjack, when you get a blackjack, historically paid out three to two, and now it pays out six to five. So instead of winning 15 for every $10 bet, you win 12 for $10 bet. So this is so weird. This is like, this is like, chip fl- this is like chipflation. You know when, when you get a bag of chips and they just, they just keep putting more, yes. more and more air in the bag and less chips? Um, so when I was at one of the tables, I said, "Hey, wait a minute. Why am I why am I not getting three to two? And she explained that they don't. This is not a three to two table. And I was like, "Not a three to two table. Are there other tables that are three to two? I didn't know that they could change these things. She goes, "Yeah, right over there. So it's like, well, what am I doing here? <laughs> I I didn't know that they could actually. Ch- I thought that was like written in stone. And so they they've they're the number of tables are down nineteen percent from a decade ago. So people, I haven't, I've, I haven't played blackjack a ton lately. The only time I ever do it is sometimes when I, I'm with you. We occasionally find a casino, but uh, this is one of those things. I have no record to prove this, but I, I'm, I'm way up in my career at blackjack. And you, you, just following the blackjack card, you know, when to stay, when to hit, all these things. I have That's a positive. I have a positive lifetime earnings in blackjack for sure. I've you never. Don't, you lo- don't think you do? I, I've I, never. I, I know I don't. Uh, I've. <laughs> I've never lost big. I've never won big. Um, but no, there's no way I'm up. I mean, I had I had one Vegas night where I was playing two hands at once after I was a little overserved and got okay. wiped out. But I, for the most part, I walk out of there with a big smile on my face and some money. Okay. So I'm, I'm not going back, though, if it's going to be six to five. All right, good one from Political. Historic low-income games. Uh, fueled by worker shortages. The lowest tiers of earners, people making an average of twelve fifty an hour, saw their pay grow nearly six percent from twenty to twenty twenty to twenty twenty two, even after factoring in inflation. They're saying that's significantly bigger than the low wage workers got even during the entire administration of Barack Obama following the Great Recession. Numbers particularly striking when compared to the three point nine percent raise the same cohort found from two thousand nine to two thousand seventeen. If you look at this chart here, it's showing the tenth percentile, which is the the lowest ten, versus the fiftieth percentile and the ninetieth percentile. The bottom ten percent have seen the biggest after-inflation gains from 2020 to 2022. And people at the top are actually seeing their wages fall after inflation, the top 10%. So the bottom 10% has seen their their wages rise 6% above inflation. The top 10% has seen them fall 5%. Here's a- We've been been talking about this all year. This is another thing that is just mind-boggling to, uh, if you were an economist or you like taught economics in school, I, I got- 
not to brag, I got economics minor in college, not a major, a minor. And I feel like everything that happens in the real world has nothing to do with my textbooks that I learned. None of it, none of it squares at all. But here's the thing. This is Powell. This is Powell said this in this piece. To be clear, strong wage growth is a good thing, but for wage growth to be sustainable, it needs to be consistent with 2% inflation. I feel like that, that sounds intelligent until you realize, like, guess what? The wage growth can't or won't happen if we don't have higher inflation, right? The higher inflation, I think, led to the higher wage growth for low-income people, which seems counterintuitive but true. Mm-hmm. Anyway, again, another sort of mind-bender to me that, that this actually happened. All right, did you read this greedflation piece from Wall Street Journal? I did not. This was pretty good. A couple of good stats in here. They're saying greedflation is actually good. And this is this good and I think who? that this for the the economy. Greedflation, for lack of a better word, is good. There you go. Good one. Uh, that's a Photoshop with you on Gordon Gecko. But Duncan, <laughs> you gotta put the hair on him. Uh, average earnings per share fall in 1.4% year over year, but it, people thought the expect expectations were 5.9% drop. The stocks Europe 600. Earnings per share were forecast to grow at 2.1% have instead of jumped 18%. Holy moly. Yes. So here's, here's why they're saying this is a good thing, that corporate profits continue to be high. One third of the growth in prices in the U.S. from 2020 to 2022 can be explained by higher corporate profits and only half by higher wages. Historically, including in the oil crises of the 70s, capital accounted for around a tenth and labor for almost two-thirds. So they're saying, this is this, look at this chart here. It shows the growth in prices by compensation and by profits. And so the fact that profits is such a big part of this actually means we're not, this is not the 70s, right? We're not having this wage price spiral. So it's going to corporations, but that's actually a good thing because that means that inflation is probably not here to stay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. That's a good chart. So this also says, here's the kicker. Inflation may be higher as a result of corporations flexing their pricing muscle, but it is probably also the reason why the recession everyone expects always seems to be six months away. Basically, people keep spending is, is kind of what they're saying. And that's a, and this is not what was happening in the 1970s. So th- that's the whole point is this is I mean, not this is why it comes, it all, This is why it always comes back to the labor market. As long as people have a job, they're going to keep spending. Yes. Right? And, and of course, like, yeah, the banks and the credit stuff, like, not that it doesn't matter. Of course it does. Everything matters. But the labor market is a big one. Yeah, but this this chart is, is if you're a, a policy wonk, it's kind of interesting. So last year, we spoke a lot about shipping costs and all the way up, all the way down, up 836%, down 85%. It looks like Zoom, that looks like Zoom share price. That's an incredible round trip. Yeah. Uh, Apollo, key supply chain indicators are now fully back at 2019 levels. So they have a bunch of charts in here uh, putting down pressure on inflation. If inflation reaccelerates, where is it going to come from? The housing market, consumer spending, I don't know. Because wage growth is already slowing as well. I think it's just consumers continuing to spend down that excess savings. Uh, All right, well, mortgage rates. Are we ready ready to take layoffs out of here and bring it back when the recession starts? That's a good point. Layoffs, the layoffs, you know what? I'm not ready to retire rich just yet. I feel like it's been dormant for a while, which is a good thing. I think we should have, I think we should have, a, you talked about, we talked about rules-based investing at the beginning. We should have rules-based uh, Google Doc stuff here. So like if we haven't mentioned it in a month, it's gone. I'm not ready. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, the average 30-year is now, I think the last time I saw it was 7.14%. 
highest of the year? I can't. <laughs> and the spread between treasuries keeps growing because treasuries are not growing this much. The, it's a mortgage. So yeah, the, this mortgage news daily has a daily rate and it was above 7%, which is just insane. Okay, what's this buy versus rent thing? Look at this chart. The mortgage, this is from Nick Garley one on Twitter. Mortgage rates back to 7%, meaning that the cost to buy a house in America is now approaching $2,700 a month when including mortgage, tax, insurance, and maintenance. Meanwhile, cost for rent is $1,850. Biggest gap we've ever seen. Something has to break. I continue to not like- Does something have to break? I mean, this chart is this chart is wild. I'm just asking. No, obviously it it doesn't because rates have gone from three percent to seven percent. Prices have gone up fifty percent, and it hasn't broken yet. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like if something was going to break, it's because it's a, it's a structural thing with there's just there's too much demand. There's too many millennials. And and I do think that if if rates stayed above seven percent for the next two years or something, yeah, prices would continue to come down. And activity would be slow and the housing market would essentially be broken, but not break like prices falling 30%. Well, so, but, but this has had an impact on uh, home purchase applications. You see the next chart? Yes. Which makes it, sense. Yeah. So rates go down, activity picks up, rates go up, activity falls. That's how it's going to be. So Redfin has their home housing payments and it shows by, from 20, by year, 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023, the based on the median home price and the prevailing mortgage rates, what the housing payment is. This and is it just, bananas. My God. In 2020, the average was fifteen less than $1,500 at this time. Now it's 2600 and that, that's at 6.6% rates. It's going to be higher. I just, I don't know. I, I, I really do feel for anyone who's in the market for a house right now because this is just, it's a, it's the worst of all worlds. Yeah, I mean the the home buyers are now are getting a raw deal. Yeah, not fair. Life's not fair. Um, okay, U.S. home prices were zero point seven percent, the smallest twelve month increase since two thousand twelve, but we're seeing declines in Seattle down twelve percent, San Francisco down eleven percent, Vegas and uh, Portland down five percent. It's like not enough. All right, so this though. is good. At least the the, the at least uh, I don't know. LA, if you've been waiting for a house in LA for a while and prices rose 40%, now they're down three, do you feel better? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, right? You need, you need no. prices to fall no. 30% to feel better about this, not Well, how about th this? Three. So uh, Zillow's forecast model, this is from Lance Lambert's, last Lance Lambert, excuse me. Zillow's forecast model predicts rising home prices between April 2023 and April 2024. And 390 of the nation's 400 largest housing markets. Well, that's not great. And of course, this is just a prediction, but my God. Look at this one. Chase Emerson tweeted this out. Toll Brothers actually raised home prices by an average of $25,000 per house over the past quarter. They're also raising their guidance for gross margins, new home deliveries, and new home prices for the rest of the year. I think home builders realize now that like, oh, we're the only game in town here. And they're actually raising, there's a builder by me who just keeps raising prices. Like we, we, you know, you get the Zillow alerts and I, there's a subdivision that I watch like new phase of houses going up and the, the prices over the last year are probably up, I don't know, 15 to 20%. Stock is up 37%. Um, on the uh, call last week, an analyst from UBS said, have you seen any impact of demand thus far? And if rates sort of stay at 7%, would you expect an incentive activity 
and cancellation rates to pick back up again for the industry. And the CEO of Toll Brothers said, we have not seen any drop in activity over the last few weeks. All right. So I have a new... If you build it, they will come. I think it's the only game in town right now. I'll say, okay, so you had your house that we were watching on your block for what? Five months or something that finally sold? At and least, you, yeah. you said it was like an insanely... We have one that went up on my block. It's a for sale by owner, and it's probably $250,000 over what it should be should be going for. And so I, this is my new Ben's housing market watch to see what this actually goes for. It's, it's, it's an insane price. How big a house? It's like a close to, what did we say mansion was? 5,000 5, square feet? It's close to that. It's a big house. Whoa. But it's, yeah, it's still way too high of a price for 1. West, 4, for West 1, Michigan. 1.4? I think it was 1.1. That's way too high of a price for Grand Rapids, Michigan. Right. We shall see. Wow, look at this chart. Alex Thomas tweeted, ouch, one in every five flipped homes was sold at a loss in the first quarter of 2023. Holy moly. I feel like that's the way it should be, though. Like, flipping a house, I don't know. Remember all the, do you, did you ever get into those house flipping shows on TLC? Or, no. Like, I remember getting into those, like, 06, 07. These, they would come in and cut corners and, I don't know. I, the whole house flipping thing to me is, has never really made sense. Like, I wouldn't want to buy a house that got flipped. However, Ben, the other day, so I, I've said this before, but I am, not a, I am not a scroller of TV. I don't think most people are anymore, right? Who scrolls? I watch what I watch. I don't, I don't flip through. You know, the, you know the worst scrolling experience ever in a hotel? It's impo- it takes like six seconds to change every channel. You're trying to scroll in a hotel? Yeah, you're right. How come Mario Lopez is the <laughs> Every default. hotel in America. Every time you turn on a TV at a hotel, you see Mario AC Lopez yeah. telling you what uh, what shows to watch. I mean, not, how do you get that gig? And how come every TV in a hotel is an LG? The only time you ever see LG TVs in a hotel. So anyway, so I was scrolling. It must have been at the hotel. And uh, Pawn Stars is still... Kicking. I used to love that show. I mean, who didn't? But it's been like, how, what is it, year 20 at this point? What are these? How, how is that still interesting? I never got into that one. Never? All right. Personal personal finance. Let's get into this. Yeah. So we had Ramit Sethi on an Animal Spirits a couple weeks ago, and we put it out on YouTube. And then Nicole, our social media manager, put it out on the compound feed. And I asked Ramit a question. I said, I've seen these studies that say, if you teach personal finance to high school students or to anyone, it doesn't really stick or it only just makes them more overconfident. It doesn't actually help their financial habits. And so I've, I always thought, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why, we should be teaching personal finance to people. And I asked Ramit about this, and he said, no, I actually don't think we should. And I actually I thought he made some valid points. I didn't agree with everything. His points were basically how are we going to decide on who teaches what and do teachers in America really have the ability to teach this anyway? And how much And most people don't need to l- learn about this stuff until they actually have to experience it. Like in, it's going to go right over their head in one ear out the other. And holy cow, do people have strong opinions on this? I was surprised about this. Like this video got a million views and people were commenting up and down my Twitter. Cause I was tagged on this. You don't ever check your Twitter mentions anymore, but there And a lot of people were teachers saying, listen, I teach this. 
I have good, like we had students chiming in. So I learned from this teacher. And so people had very strong opinions about this, which I was surprised about. I did look at some of the things and people were like super nasty. Uh, there were some nasty comments. Um, I don't know. I didn't think he said, what he said was that offensive. You're allowed to disagree with somebody. Uh, I didn't think it was that offensive. There was people who took, I think it was teachers took a lot of offense. But I, I think you can say like, I'm a teacher who knows how to do this and, and I stand out. And that's my point is that like, the, but to his point, there's probably not enough teachers that have the ability to teach this. But I, I don't think we should not try though. I haven't thought about, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about should personal finance be taught in school. So you, maybe you don't like my take, that's fine too. Please don't clown emoji me, although if you want, I guess you can. So here's my take. Um, I used to be of the opinion that, uh, what do kids learn in school? Wow, this is about to sound bad. I was a really bad student. I did not, you know, I, this might sh- surprise you that I have attention issues. So I did not retain much of what I was taught in school. And so I don't, I don't know that teaching personal finance would really do anything. Would, would, it, would it sink in? That was, that was my take. And then I was like, but wait a minute. But just because I was a horrible student doesn't mean that a lot of other people can't benefit from being taught the basics of personal finance. Furthermore, we teach biology and like chemistry and shit that you will never, ever, ever use ever again. And so if you teach personal finance and only 10% of students take something away from it, well, that's that's great. So that's, that's my thinking too. If so, like, if, why, not, why, not te- why not? Why not teach it? Why not teach it? Yeah, we teach to people about taxes and budgeting and stuff. And ninety percent of the people, it goes in one ear, not the other. But ten percent, it's like, oh, I'm thinking about this stuff, and I remember it permeates. That's a, I went. I had to read where the red fern grows in a tale of two cities. Oh, I love where and, the red fern grows. I know. But point but taken. Point taken. Dante's Inferno. All this stuff that was useless to me. That that I think if again, if ten percent of students latch onto this and like th- are more thoughtful about it when they, oh yeah, that's right. And maybe I should look into this more. I think that's a win. One of the points that we made that I thought was sort of what was, was reasonable was a lot of people don't even, we can't even agree on the basics of personal finance. True. But so can we, we can't agree on the basics of a lot of stuff we teach. Yeah. That's, don't, I think that's a reason to not try. Yeah. Um, but I don't, yeah, I don't, the, the vitriol with which he got some comments, I, yeah, I that, thought people. That was that, a bit, uh, that was a bit over the top, I thought. Okay, speaking of my lack of attention to detail, I was looking for straws, and my Robin goes, "You give me a straw," and my, so I have, we have like a, a, a pantry. I'm like, I, I, I don't, I don't know where they are. <laughs> and she had a great line. She said, "If you knew where they were, then you know where they'd be." I was like, <laughs> "Well, yeah, but I don't, I don't know where they are." So, <laughs> uh, she kind of got you there. I, I was, I was in Target the other day, and I feel like the electronic section in Target keeps getting smaller and smaller, as it should. I can't imagine that they're electronic appliances are doing that well, but they still sell DVDs. And I saw cocaine. Really? I saw, I saw cocaine bear and I can't imagine, I really, really, really can't imagine the person that would purchase a cocaine bear DVD. And then put it in their little stand next to the TV to show it off. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, where's this one going to go? Was it, was this 2002? I can't remember what book it was. I was reading one of the books on the streaming war and DVD sales are one of the reasons that we have such crappy movies now. Because even if a film bombed at the box office back in the day, most of the time they could actually count on DVD sales to make it up for huge. it. And they made and like the margins on DVD sales were enormous. And that's one of the reasons that we don't have such good movies anymore because they have to go for the sure thing. You can't put out a comedy anymore that's going to make twenty million at the box office, and then a hundred million on DVD sales, or whatever, because that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. 
Um, all right. Uh, we spoke about Netflix briefly last week in terms of like their their transition to uh, disallowing sharing and ads. And Beth Kinding tweeted, Netflix revealed 5 million ad tier subscribers last week per Reuters at $7 a month. That's already at a $100 million quarterly run rate um, and will monetize at a higher rate than other plans, potentially boosting the bottom line. And the stock had a hell of a hell of a week based on that. So... Here's as a shareholder holding. like that? What's that? Okay. At, you, you like saying that about Netflix. As a shareholder? Yes. Just facts. You, you're, what's, the, what's the meme of the guy on the, on the, he's standing like on the porch looking down on people in his English attire? Although, although I, I do, so I do stand by my comment the other day. So Warner Brothers looks disgusting. Paramount looks disgusting. And Disney Disney, I mean, I, it, maybe it is a value trap. So I, uh, I also own Disney. I might have to, I might have to take the L on Disney because I was doing a victory lap for a while because I, I said Disney Plus is going to be huge, and they, they broke through any of the highest expectations you could imagine for a number of subscribers, but and it did nothing for them. So they I'm just saying, enough. technically, the stock looks like a mess, and if it breaks, like its recent support, I know this is whatever could go a lot lower. Um, so I'm not sure. I mean, I probably should sell, but this isn't this. I didn't. This wasn't a trade for me. But I don't know. The business is a challenge, and it might just be a value trap. So, uh, all right. Here's here's something I was wrong about in the past week or so. I the first time I went to go log on to HBO Max like ten days ago, and it said, "Okay, you have to now download the Max app from HBO Max," and it automatically downloaded. And does it, it was, does it sync to your? Because I haven't done it yet. Does it sync to your? It automatically did. Yes, okay, but. It was so glitchy, and the picture looked bad, and it was stopping. And I, I can't believe that on Sunday night the succession finale didn't like go out, and because people watching, I was, I was shocked that it didn't go out. Which I mean, we're this is get just to. they bungled the shit out of this. Ben Gilbert tweeted the slow descent into madness, and it's four pictures: HBO Go, HBO Now, HBO Max, Max. Why would they kill the name HBO? It's like I don't know why they don't caboodle. just call it H. I don't know why they just don't call it HBO. It is bizarre to me. All right, good one from the Compound Survey Channel, which is weird to do by yourself. Go to a movie, go to a sporting event. Almost 2,000 voters, 74% said go to a sporting event. Kind of agree. Did you get any weird looks? You're sitting at the heat game by yourself? None. But no, I agree, I agree with that. It's way weirder to go to a sporting event alone. All right, quick, quick feedback from the pod today and Michael's complaints about the ticket site that shall not be named. Oh man, we had so many people jumping on your side of the, Ship for this thing. Like, I can't stand this. Last year, I posted company. tickets to a concert on various ticket resale sites. It sold on a competitor, and I failed to bring my post down in enough time as a buyer purchased them from the ticket company who shall not be named, maybe an hour or two after I had sold them via SeatGeek or something. So, the ticket company who shall not be named said I had failed to hold up my end of the bargain and charged me the amount the buyer paid for my tickets as a penalty for not selling my ticket. After listening to Michael's story on the heat tickets and based upon my experience, are we now to believe that the ticket provider who shall not be named would not refund Michael and yet still penalize the seller for not completing the sale? So they did to this guy what you wanted them to do to you last week. Yeah, which thereby means that they collect double the amount of the sale for a sale that did not occur. Essentially, a seller lists tickets for 100, buyer pays 100. Seller does not complete the sale. Seller is penalized 100, and buyer is not given a refund. I would go to my credit card company immediately and tell them to void that transaction. That's crap. Um, yeah. So there was this is timely. Um, Wall Street Journal wrote an article about Taylor Swift. 
Uh, nine days before she was scheduled to take her 17-year-old daughter to see Taylor Swift in concert in Philadelphia, Janine Travia realized that the pair of nosebleed tickets for which she paid a total of $1,000 were canceled. StubHub, the resale site where she had purchased tickets after failing to score face value seats on Ticketmaster, told her via email that she was entitled to alternative comparable tickets, but there were none left anywhere near the price she had paid originally. After days of refreshing the site and desperately asking around parent groups at one point, offering her best friend $1,000 for her ticket, she sprung for two floor tickets totaling $5,500. StubHub later refunded Travia about $4,500 toward the difference in price. Oh, good for them. Okay. But this this Taylor Swift, Swift stuff is nuts. So dollar sales for Taylor Swift's tour this year are seven times out of Bruce Springsteen, eight times Morgan Wallen, who uh, I don't know who that is, and Coldplay, nine times Adele. I am definitely middle-aged because I don't know who that person is. And Beyonce. And you don't know who Adele is? No, I know Adele. I don't know Morgan Wallen. And oh, okay. Th- 13 times what this year's Super Bowl did, according to StubHub. Okay. Well, this is kind of nuts. So StubHub said 70% of orders for Taylor Swift tickets on its platform are fan sellers, as opposed to professional ticket brokers, double what it normally sees. And this is this is sending all sorts of glitches, as you as you can imagine. I w- so my daughter, my nine-year-old, is a huge Taylor Swift fan. And I was always kind of like, eh, it's, a, you know, the new, I, I just, the new music stuff. She listens to Taylor Swift all the time. Uh, and, and I've totally come around. Like, her music is good. That's not making a big leap there. But uh, it would have been nice to see her be like, I'm not selling my tickets for anything, any more than $50 a ticket or something like that. Just put a ceiling on it and and don't allow re- resales or something. I don't know. It, it This kind of, the the prices of the tickets to me is kind of kind of gross. I don't, I'm not a, I don't like it. Here's this, coup de gras. StubHub's penalties for sellers not delivering tickets range by the degree of error and end result for the buyer. The company can charge the seller what it costs to replace the ticket. In many cases, more than five times the seller's originally listed price. So this article from the Wall Street Journal corroborates my experience, was not very uh, kind. All right, another poll. You eat alone at a restaurant and they add 20% gratuity to the bill. Fair or not fair? And 87% said not okay. So somebody emailed us. This, this also makes sense to me. We had a lot of people say this. They said, I think they auto add the 18 to 20% tip in most places here because it is tourist heavy and international tourists don't typically tip. And if they do, it is under 10%. So the restaurants auto add it to satisfy the staff. Yeah, a lot of okay people said that. it was, it was okay a Miami thing. I would just like to see a sign. Tip automatically added. I'd like to give a heads up. Yeah, that's okay. I get it. But we know that you you go line by line on every bill because the like, price of the tequila, you, you have to look. Oh, and no, also, I don't. <laughs> no, we, 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 were at the, we were at the bar in, in Florida getting a nice Miami Vice for lunch, and you saw Casa Azul, and you said, hey, how much for Casa Azul? I'm just curious. You now price check it everywhere we're going. What did you say, $60 after taxes? Yeah, that's a lot. And you said- Eighty-seven or whatever you paid in Chicago, eighty-six, yeah. and and she said that, that's crazy. Yeah, but crazy, sixty dollars—that that's fair. Um. Okay. Recommendations. What do you got, Ben? All right. I did watch. I was having a hard time finding a movie on Delta on my flight home last week, and I got sucked into a few good men. I haven't watched it in forever. Duh, Just so good. One of the is I I think the the scene with Cruz and Nicholson at the end is one of the best scenes in movie history. And yeah. everyone remembers the Jack line, obviously, but Cruz toe to toe the whole time when he's yelling back at him yeah. just i got i was watching it on the, i got chills yeah. watching it on my flight on a little 6 inch screen uh do your recommendations now because i want to talk about two finales and give a spoiler alert so you go ahead uh once again i i'm dry cuz i've just been watching basketball and uh and succession uh i noticed uh i noticed <laughs> you see this uh 
He's the poor man's Liam Neeson. You see this? So there's Gerard a, what Butler. am I, I'm, I'm, my brain's broken. What is this called? An advertisement, I guess, but what is it actually called? A movie poster? I don't know. It's a movie poster. There, there you go. Uh, Gerard Butler is in Kandahar. And this is the tagline, 400 miles, 30 hours, a race for survival. I am automatically in. This is, gonna be, the, this, this is going to be terrible, but I'm, I'm- I gave up on the, it was like White House Down or something where he's protecting the, he's a Secret Service guy. Terrific That's my, That was my last Gerard <laughs> Butler. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a soft spot in my heart for this guy. I know. All right. All right. We're talking about succession now. We're not going to talk a lot, but let's do spoiler alert here. Duncan put it up. Way to beat. Way to beat. Uh, so if you don't want to hear our thoughts on succession, you haven't seen it yet. But honestly, if you haven't seen it yet, what are you doing? Right. All right. Uh, I- I liked the finale. I loved the last season. I thought the show was, it's on my Mount Rushmore, like definitively. I thought the, I thought I actually thought the, the second to last episode, and I hate when people call it penultimate. I just, it's such a, every TV person, the penultimate episode of Succession, I can't do it. Yeah. It's the Win- Winnie the Pooh meme. Second to last, I thought that was better than the finale, but I, I didn't like guess how it was going to end because I didn't, I, I didn't care really, but I, I liked how they ended it and I thought it fit with the show and it's the best written, best acted show I've ever seen. And the craziest thing is, is none of the characters were likable and they still made you care about the show, which I think is just like, like Breaking Bad, you liked some of the characters. Sopranos, you loved a lot of the characters. The Wire, you loved a lot of the characters. Mad Men, you loved a lot of the characters. You didn't love any of these characters really and you still... But well, you what you mean is, kind of, no, you love the characters, but you weren't rooting for any of them. They're all yeah, terrible you were, people. They were terrible people, yeah. but you in they took turns being the most deplorable, and you still wanted to know what was going to happen to them. And like, and I thought that I actually thought the way that they did it. And did you listen to the last five minutes after the show where the the creator talked about like he kind of explained where everyone ended up and why they ended? And I thought that was worth the Jesse Armstrong guy listening to, but I I just thought Tom taking the seat of the throne was, I don't know. I thought it was perfect. I liked it. Plus, Tom is from the Midwest. So he he elbowed his way in and pushed the coastal elites out of the way. Um, I had two thoughts. Uh, the show could not have gone on without Logan. No, I thought it, it definitely sputtered there for a couple episodes mid-season. And it, it, it finished strong, but yeah, killing him off early was like a really good idea. But it, yeah, you're right. It couldn't have gone on. Um, actually, three thoughts. Uh, I thought Kendall was going to kill himself at the end of the I vote. Did. I thought he was going to die too. Uh, and then lastly, the only thing that I didn't like, and I, I like Skarsgård a lot as an actor. I just didn't buy his character. Like, I just didn't think it was effective. I think it just didn't work for me. But it's a nitpick, I guess. They they probably took the kooky tech billionaire thing a little too far. Yeah, it was just... It just I, th- I think that guy's a fantastic actor, though. I think he's really good. Yeah, he's great. I just didn't but like his character. I just think the act, especially on the second to last, the funeral episode, I thought the the speeches, the acting was just phenomenal. Anyway, and I am I am bone dry. Should I revisit Barry? Because I've got no shows. Okay, so I the Barry finale was also this weekend. I can't believe they did two finales on Memorial Day weekend. Is it is, it, is it worth me me? I left the show with a smile on my face and not in the way you'd think. So it was very. I said it got very dark. You, I think you should watch it. Okay. Okay. I think you could right. even watch the last two episodes if you didn't want to watch the whole thing. No, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. Okay, uh, so I'll watch, watch it. I'll watch it. And the end, of the, the end of the show made me laugh, like in a dark, dark way. But like the last 10 minutes of the show, in, 
after it was done, my wife and I turned to each other and we just said, what a weird, weird show. It's unlike anything we've ever watched. And but I, and so I, I didn't come away being like, that show was great. But I came away going, I've never seen a show like that before. And the ending made me laugh. All right. All right. Say so no more. I, th- I think it's 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 worth worth revisiting for you. All right. Animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>